Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based here in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. We are recording this on Friday, October 14th, 2022, and we have a really exciting episode this week. Lots to cover. We're going to be talking about breaking news that Nicholas Cruz avoids the death penalty after a Florida jury uh, spared his life, recommending life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus two high-profile sexual assault cases underway in Los Angeles at the same time as Harvey Weinstein and Danny Masterson each have their respective trials begin. And lastly, we'll talk about the landmark defamation verdict as a jury has ordered Alex Jones to pay nearly $1 billion to the families of victims for the Sandy Hook massacre. Today, we're excited to be joined by Imran Ansari, a trial lawyer, a former prosecutor with hundreds of cases under his belt, specializing in civil litigation, personal injury, and criminal law. He is also a legal analyst and host for the Law and Crime Network. Imran, welcome. Josh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, You've been on the show before, but for listeners who have not heard that podcast, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your current practice today? Sure. So, Josh, I started originally before I was a lawyer. I was a TV producer at Court TV. So that sort of gave me the media bug. I had a broadcast journalism undergrad. But while I'm at Court TV, I start getting more and more interested in the law. Uh, That leads me to law school. And after law school, uh, I thought I was going to do entertainment law when I was in law school. And I got an internship at the Brooklyn District Attorney's Office. uh, And I fall in love with trial work. I realize that there's so much uh, synergy and similarities with the skills in the courtroom uh, as with television and the media and scripting for air. Uh, I went to uh, the DA's office. I started as an ADA uh, in the Brooklyn DA's office. Uh, and I left there in 2014. I joined a firm where I am at now as a partner. It's called Idala, Bertuna, and Kamins uh, in New York City. Um, I was doing criminal defense uh, when I first started, but I also started learning civil litigation while I was at it. And I aimed to sort of bring that into the practice. Uh, slowly but surely, that part of the house uh, here in the firm has grown tremendously. Uh, and now I'm leading the civil litigation practice. Uh, And I'm doing, you know, I still dabble in criminal defense, but I'm primarily handling a lot of the uh, civil practice, but as a litigator and a trial attorney. Fantastic. Well, we're going to call upon all of that experience uh, 
and I know you follow these cases closely, so we're we're really curious to hear your thoughts. So we'll jump right in. First, we go to uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where a Florida jury has spared the life of Nicholas Cruz, recommending instead of the death penalty that he be sentenced to life without parole for the Parkland massacre. Cruz had, had pled guilty last year to 17 counts of first-degree murder for the 2018 shooting that left 14 students and three staff members dead. Jurors witnessed emotional testimony from survivors, video footage of crews carrying out the attack, and even toured the crime scene at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. His defense countered by presenting mitigating circumstances alluding to Cruz's extremely troubled childhood, mental illness, and the systematic failures leading up to the attack. According to the jury, jury's four-person, three jurors were unable to vote for the death penalty. We know it has to be unanimous with Cruz's mental illness cited as a factor in their decision. Cruz will now face formal sentencing on November 1st. Reportedly, all of the victim's family members who spoke to the media were furious about the verdict, with many seeing it as a miscarriage of justice for their loved ones. Uh, Imran, jump right in. Was this verdict surprising to you? Yeah, I'm going to say, Josh, it was surprising. Of course, you know, Florida, you need a unanimous verdict uh, for the death penalty to be uh, the sentence for a defendant. Uh, and I was surprised because first you're in Florida and uh, people in Florida, I'm just I'm speaking uh, transparently and honestly here, you know, they tend, uh, there's a, a conservative uh, constituency there sure. and people uh, have, um, are, are less, uh, let's say not inclined to uh, enter a verdict for the death penalty there. And I know I'm speaking general, but I'm also speaking about Nicholas Cruz. And I'm speaking about a person who went into a school and took the lives of uh, dozens of, of, of innocent children, uh, went into court, took responsibility for that crime, pled guilty, uh, and then litigated the uh, sentencing phase, if you will. Um, because of the egregious nature of the crime, the testimony and the evidence that was elicited by the prosecution during the course of that sentencing trial, I thought that there was a good chance that Nicholas Cruz would be the candidate for a death penalty verdict. And no matter how you feel about it politically, ideologically, or morally, um, it's on the books there in Florida. It is available for uh, juries uh, to uh, elect that as a sentence for a defendant in this sort of case. Um, so I was surprised, but you hear that um, there was three jurors who were the holdouts out of the uh, the full jury there. And, you know, I hear that the prosecution are going to be looking into uh, some aspects of what may have gone on in that jury room. I, I think there may be one juror uh, who did um, uh, uh, say that there was some influence going on there that may have not been proper amongst the jury. Uh, but we're going to have to see as you know, the, the prosecution are going to look into that. Uh, the court is going to do an analysis. But right now, as far as we know, uh, Nicholas Cruz will spend the left, rest of his life in jail and was spared the death penalty. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I found this shocking too. I mean, it it seems like this is the 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 you know perfect example of a case of you know if you're going to have the death penalty and say that it's reserved for only the most heinous of crimes, how could a crime like this not qualify? Especially on top of that, it, you know, the death, the loss of life, is staggering in it, in and of itself. But you add to that his uh, kind of hero worship of these prior uh, mass shooters and the way he would he would glorify what they had done and he thought it was such a great thing. 
yes, I realize mental illness and all this other kind of stuff, but this was someone who seemed to have enjoyed what they were about to do and and even his conduct afterwards seemed to indicate that it was no problem to him whatsoever. It seemed like this was the type of case that was definitely deserving of the death penalty if, if you believe we should have that penalty at all. Not to mention that these jurors are were quote-unquote uh, what's called death qualified, meaning that their voir dire is done differently um, because each of those jurors have to be able to say that they would be willing to give the death penalty if they felt it was appropriate. So already, I agree with you, you're talking about a state that does kind of uh, lean uh, kind of more conservative in law enforcement where they have uh, used the death penalty in the past. And then you're talking about a group of people who already kind of lean that way and that they're willing to give the death penalty. And for them to not do it in this case, um, I guess it asks or begs the the kind of larger cultural question, do you think that we as a society have kind of moved farther and away from the death penalty uh, where it's just going to be too gif- difficult for prosecutors to secure those types of uh, verdicts now? Yeah, perhaps. And, you know, uh, Josh, just for our listeners, uh, no misunderstanding, I, I, I wasn't painting with a broad brush, right? Florida, of course, there's yeah, yeah. across the spectrum uh, politically and ideologically and, and what have you. But it's just the reality. We as attorneys, Josh, we know that. We think about what venue we're in for our case. Absolutely. We think about the jurisdiction. We think about the jury makeup uh, and demographics in any particular area where we have a case pending. And we know that certain cases may have a, a jury pool, which is, <clears throat> is leaning in one direction, um, or you know, and a, a jury pool in another area. We know as attorneys, all right, that venue may be more uh, inclined for our client, more inclined to uh, render a conviction or what have you. And and that's what I'm saying about Florida. And this was the case, as you say, Joshua, that you would think um, that if there was any case appropriate, if you were even on the fence and they went through that voir dire process, the prosecution were uh, satisfied that that jury uh, would, uh, uh, you know, fine for the death penalty if the prosecution proves their case and that it's warranted in their case. Um, but there you have um, it not being granted and you wonder, is there an ideological shift or, or an understanding here? Because we know in other countries across the world, the death penalty in certain areas, right, are, is looked down upon and it's looked as archaic, um, yeah. but we still have it on the books in, in many states here in the United States. But it's interesting because um, this case unfolded in court without much remorse from Nicholas Cruz. And when you have that, um, and when you have that coupled with all the disturbing drawings, the things that we saw, through the prosecution's case, even under the lens of mental illness, um, you still would think that the jury would come to a conclusion that this reached that level, if any case yeah. would, uh, for the death penalty. Yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess my thought too is that a couple decades ago, maybe maybe longer, maybe shorter, I think this easily would have been a death penalty case. I, I just I wonder if. Um, culturally, we've kind of moved farther away from that. And I wonder if we'll start seeing less and less of those types of verdicts. But in any case, they, they've they come to their decision. It is final, and he will remain for the rest of his life in jail. So let's move now to Los Angeles, where two big trials are taking place at the same time in the same building. It's pretty incredible. Uh, both of them kind of related in many aspects. We're, um, we're talking about the sexual assault trial of disgraced Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein uh, has begun jury selection on Monday, October 10th. 
And I'm going to stop here for a second to, to, for full transparency. My law firm that I formerly worked at uh, is handling the case for Weinstein here in Los Angeles. I, I was n not directly involved in the case, and I don't work there anymore. Um, and Imran, your firm actually participated in Weinstein's defense uh, in New York and is continuing to handle his appeal. Is that correct? Uh, correct, uh, Josh. So And so, you know, in full transparency here, uh, and disclaimer, um, you know, I actively represent Harvey Weinstein currently um, in civil cases um, and my firm also act and um, we're a small boutique firm. We represent Harvey Weinstein in the appeal of the New York uh, state conviction. We also were uh, his attorneys in the New York state trial. So we actively and currently represent um, Harvey Weinstein. So, of course, uh, there's going to be a limit as to what I could talk about yeah, here, yeah. but uh, I'm happy to answer some questions and of, discuss this case. Of course. Well, we're, we're very curious now to hear your insights, and we will make sure to try to avoid any attorney-client privileged areas. But Weinstein, now 70 years old, faces 11 counts related to the sexual assault of five women in separate incidents from 2004 to 2013. We're talking about here in the Los Angeles trial. While the victims in the case will not be named, one woman set to testify has come forward publicly, and that is Governor Gavin Newsom's wife, Jennifer Siebel Newsom, who will take the stand as Jane Doe 4. In 2020, Harvey Weinstein was sentenced to 23 years for a separate rape conviction in New York. That's the case that we were just talking about. However, in August, the state court of appeals granted him permission to appeal his conviction. If convicted in California, Weinstein faces the possibility of life in prison. Okay, Imran, first let's talk about that New York case. And I, and I want to talk about the appeal because I think it, it presents some really interesting issues. Um, essentially, the argument, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the judge allowed too much and too far attenuated prior bad acts evidence to be presented in that prosecution. Could you walk us through that, what the argument is there? Sure. So, Josh, there's a... Uh, a few arguments that we're putting uh, forth uh, for Mr. Weinstein on appeal. One of them is what you said there. So there are uh, in New York, there's um, prior convictions, right? You can get evidence of prior convictions in if the judge allows it. But there's also prior bad acts, uncharged crimes. Uh, but here, um, our position is that the judge went even beyond, let's say, uncharged crimes to the point where he was allowing uh, evidence before that jury as to just Harvey Weinstein's general alleged, um, you know, uh, behavior at work to people he met randomly, some employees. And when I say behavior, I'm not talking about alleged sexual uh, misconduct. I'm talking about just being uh, someone who may have yelled at someone or cursed at someone or treated someone uh, maybe not uh, so nicely. And it, 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 our position was that that evidence was so prejudicial and lacked probative value that it was not properly before the jury and the judge should have excluded that and it did not pass the sort of smell test uh, of what prior bad acts or uncharged crimes or even uh, could could reach the jury's ears and it was to such an extent that he was not able to get a fair trial um josh there's other arguments that there was a juror uh who was uh what we say was almost like an activist juror she had uh, not disclosed originally during Poitier uh that she had uh, penned a book um, talking, which which dealt with um, older men in power uh, and women. And um, although that came out during the course of uh, early on in, in jury selection, the judge still allowed this juror to sit on the jury despite 
the defense objections from our team. So that's another aspect of the uh, of the appeal. But um, I'm just giving a general sense. There's no. other arguments, of course, that we have in that appeal. But it was denied just to give our listeners a little uh, roadmap of, of the New York courts. Right. You have the trial courts. Then you appeal to the uh, appellate division, which is the intermediary uh, uh, appellate court. Uh, and then you appeal up to the highest court uh, in the state, which is the New York State Court of Appeals. Um, and the Court of Appeals, they're very particular about the cases they're going to hear. So we, uh, the conviction of Harvey Weinstein was affirmed by that middle appellate court and the Court of Appeals uh, has issued a decision that they will hear the ultimate appeal up before them. And that's what we're working on filing right now. Understood. Let me ask you a couple of questions about what you and thank you for laying that all out for us. Really fascinating stuff. Um, this juror, you're saying that the judge allowed. Did you have challenges to that juror, like a peremptory challenge, or what? How was it that you were not able to get that juror off? Because you're saying that this information came out in voir dire. So I, I should clarify that, uh, Josh. So the information did not come out during voir dire. So she was understood. Seated. I uh, understand she was seated, now. Okay. Uh, and then at some point between the start of the trial um, and jury selection and then the commencement of, of trial. And it may have been, I can't remember if it was after opening statements or before, but we had, uh, uh, it was raised to the judge that, uh, and I believe we found this on social media, that she had penned this book, uh, wow. which dealt with uh, the power dynamics of older men uh, and women. Uh, and younger women, which we felt would render her a uh, not a fair and impartial juror, but someone who may have a bias uh, and may particularly have a bias against someone like Harvey Weinstein, given the allegations and the crimes he was charged with. We challenged uh, the you know, we, we brought that to the judge's attention. We said she should be removed from the jury. The judge did not agree and allowed her to sit for the trial, which is one point of appeal that we have uh, for Mr. Weinstein. So she had kind of purposefully kept that from you during the voir dire process. I'm sure she must have been asked some questions about any biases she carries and was able to somehow hide that information before she actually got sat on the jury. That's correct. pretty incredible. Correct. So we're saying she was not forthcoming. It was discovered, yet the judge still allowed her to serve. Wow. Incredible stuff. Um, the other question I had for you is, in California, um, these prior bad acts in sexual assault cases allow for the prosecution to make some pretty powerful and almost insurmountable type arguments because they can argue propensity. And I'm curious if New York operates the same way. In other words, it's not just, hey, this person did something similar before, so that demonstrates kind of a general uh, MO or shows, you know, they, they, they have, you know, if they prey upon people that, uh, you know, are uh, you know, worker, somebody who works with them, and this person accusing them now is also somebody who works with them. You know, you can understand how that might be corroborating evidence. But the 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 prosecution in in California can actually say this person ha by this prior bad acts has demonstrated that they are the type of person to commit sexual assaults. Therefore, you can believe that they are a person who will commit other sexual assaults. They have a propensity to do that. Incredibly damaging. Do they have the similar type of argument in New York? So, Josh, I mean, but it's to an extent, right? So okay. if they're, you know, if they're, uh, and of course the judge acts as that gatekeeper, right? And it is in the judge's discretion uh, to allow certain evidence in or not. And of course, if there's a disagreement, there's always that 
uh, appeal for the defendant uh, uh, if it's the defense objecting to that. Uh, but what happened in New York was that the the uh, I would say the gate was open uh, to such an extent that even the most um, collateral sort of accusation or, you yeah, know, yeah. you know, just a, a, a someone of Mr. Weinstein being a, a angry man yelling at maybe a waiter. I forget certain aspects like that, evidence like that were allowed to come in before the jury, which were so um, removed from, let's say, the act of an alleged sexual assault uh, that it was just amounting to a pylon. And I use that word uh, a lot because it, in essence, that's what it was. Instead of evidence that had uh, probative value, um, this was just a pylon of Mr. Weinstein uh, being a bad man or an angry man, a mean man. Uh, and it colored the jury, we feel, uh, to the extent that he didn't get a fair trial. And however you feel about Mr. Weinstein, um, you have to remember that we have a uh, very uh, intact and uh, commendable justice system for the most part, right? That operates in a certain way, uh, which allows evidence to come in or not come in, and which allows everyone to have a fair trial. And no matter what someone is accused of, be it Harvey Weinstein or someone else, that due process and that fair and constitutional process needs to play out. And if people are so influenced by the, say, the court of public opinion or a movement uh, that is taking place, then you can't allow that um, as a judge or even a prosecutor to color your prosecution, to color what's going on in court at trial. You have to let it be a fair process. And we argue to the extent that he was going to trial in that climate um, it wasn't a fair trial among, you know, many things. Uh, and that's why that conviction should be tossed. Understood. Um, so let's turn to the L.A. case because it's it's very similar in the sense that you have multiple women. You have five women who are accusing him. Um, in many respects, they're unrelated to each other. Um, you know, they're separated by by time and even having, you know, it, it's not like they're all come from the same office or something. Um and essentially what will happen, I imagine, is that they, even if you have, you know, one of the uh, allegations being perhaps less convincing uh, than the others, you know, maybe perhaps their memory is affected or their, their, the, the defense does a good job on cross-examination to show that there's holes in their story, that there's this effect of cross-corroboration uh, that if, well, that person's allegations may be kind of weak, but listen to this other person who was very strong in their memory and, and very specific, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just going to kind of throw them all into the same uh, basket here. Do you think that's, how, one, do you think that's how it's going to play out? And two, how, how does a defense deal with something like that? Yeah, I'm, j listen, Josh, uh, Mark at your former firm and the whole team there, uh, excellent attorneys. Um, but, you know, it's going to be a tough trial. I mean, it was a yeah. tough trial uh, in New York, given, you know, what uh, the, the court of public opinion already uh, having made up their mind. And now, uh, of course, Mark and, and the team there go in um, with with uh, Harvey Weinstein having a conviction saddled on his back. And of course, they're going to go through that rigorous uh, dire process of of trying to find a fair and impartial jury. Uh, but, you know, when you have um, the claims that are piggybacking um, after a prosecution and a conviction in New York, and you're trying to find, uh, you know, obviously that is going to play a part in, in this trial. That's a conviction. Um, you know, it, it's going to be a very tough process to, A, on the first instance, find a fair and impartial juror, 
uh, to be seated on that, um, given now you have not only the Me Too movement five years in, <clears throat> but also uh, Harvey Weinstein being very famously convicted uh, in the New York case. Um, you're going to have that process being a very difficult process on, on the first hand. Um, and then also throughout trial uh, with the evidence coming in. But, you know, uh, we do our job as defense attorneys, as you do uh, yourself, Josh, you know, the best for your client. And um, although it's going to be a, a tough fight, I'm sure uh, Mark and, and everyone's going to be doing their best in court. Yeah. One, one last uh, thing I wanted to cover on this, and you've alluded to it a, a few times now, but it's been five years since The New Yorker published their Weinstein expose, which ignited the Me Too movement. He has essentially become the poster child for that movement. Um, you, so you've got that at play. At the same time, you have a 70-year-old man who has a rapidly declining condition. Uh, apparently, you know, this has come out in arguments that the attorneys have made in court that his teeth are rotting, he's unable to walk, he's in a wheelchair. Do you think that, which do you think plays a more, a stronger role with these jurors? Both of which have nothing to do with the evidence, but it's something that does play a role in jurors' minds. The backdrop of Me Too, or you have this person who's essentially falling apart in front of your eyes, do you think any of that uh, affects the jurors? Well, you know, Josh, you and I know that they're going to be instructed that they have to put sympathy aside. Uh, right. And they put sympathy aside not only for uh, the victims in the case, but also the defendant also. And uh, I could tell you that um, uh, Mr. Weinstein's not in good health whatsoever. Uh, when he was in the New York trial, he was uh, walking with the assistance of a walker. Many people out there in the press and the public thought he was malingering and that wasn't, uh, you know, he was doing that to garner sympathy. I think at this point uh, in time, I could tell you that that was not true. Uh, he was seriously uh, suffering from orthopedic injury. He still is. He has a slew of other health problems. He's getting older. Um, he's in uh, confinement in, in prison. And I could tell you that uh, I believe the prison conditions there in L.A. are tougher than that they are uh, here in New York. Um, and, you know, there's that question, is he getting adequate medical treatment in prison? Uh, you know, there's been, a, you know, requests for certain procedures that he needs medically. Um, and whether the jury looks at that and, and somehow, even though they're instructed not to, uh, ha you know, include sympathy in their, their deliberations or analysis of the evidence, um, if that comes into play, I don't know. But then um, the fact of the matter is that, you know, and, and, Harvey Weinstein in the public eye um, right. is is not a is someone that the public really gravitates to anymore, right? So right. Um, it's uh, that may play a role too. And I, I have to say though that people cannot lose sight that with movements, with very public accusations, people who are accused who it may have wealth or power at one point of of things, <coughs> crimes or otherwise, excuse me, it also opens the door. And I'm not naming anyone. I'm just saying it opens the door. And I'm not even necessarily talking about Harvey Weinstein particularly. Opens the door to people making claims that may not be uh, true. You know, I mean, because that and that's just the nature um, of a very public accusation. Uh, people who are in power um, and, you know, people always need to realize that, that the justice system needs to unfold through the use of evidence. It needs to really, uh, people have to have a fair shake in court, no matter who you are. And without that, um, and if people start losing that in this, in this day of social media uh, and podcasts and so, you know, uh, uh, 
things online and people just going on Twitter rants and all that, if that starts influencing people's decisions once they're sworn in as a juror, then we're going to really lose what in essence is the most critical part of our justice system, and that is having fair and impartial trials. So we have to be very um, cognizant of that. And I'm just sort of saying that in a general sense, uh, you know, as time progresses and technology progresses and people really, you know, vent their views on online. Uh, and I think we'll maybe talk about Alex Jones and he's someone who, uh, you know, is a prime example of someone really abusing uh, the First Amendment right. But, you know, my point is that trials need to be fair. They need to be impartial. People need to get their constitutional right in court. Yeah. yeah. And we and we kind of saw the other side of that, uh, not in a criminal trial, but with Johnny Depp and Amber Herb to what you alluded to, that sometimes people make accusations and you put them in front of, uh, you know, rigorous cross-examination and their stories really begin to kind of fall apart uh, as happened in that case. And again, I'm not, we're, neither one of us are, are kind of uh, pointing towards any uh, case in particular or any of the women making accusations in this case, but it is, Correct. Uh, it is, I think, you are true that we should all remain mindful that the courts need to have these things play out in a fair manner. The criminal court building in downtown Los Angeles is a very busy place nowadays because in another Los Angeles-based case of sexual assault, the trial-facing actor Danny Masterson began with jury selection on Tuesday, October 11th. The actor and star of That 70s Show faces allegations of drugging women and assaulting them at his home in the Hollywood Hills. Masterson was charged in 2020 with three counts of rape by force or fear. The charges relate to three different women dating to incidents in 2001 and 2003. Along with Masterson's former celebrity status, Scientology may also play a role in this case, with all three victims belonging to the Church of Scientology, of which Masterson is also a member. The victims also allege they were pressured into keeping the allegation secret by church officials. However, the judge has been very clear in laying down ground rules, saying this is not going to become a trial on Scientology. If convicted, Masterson faces 45 years to life. He has maintained that the sex was always consensual. Uh, Imran, first of all, this case different, uh, very similar in a lot of respects to, to Weinstein, but also very different in that these are nearly 20-year-old allegations. How do you think that will affect this trial? Yeah, now, Josh, I think it, well, it's going to be a test on the evidence, right? So after 20 right. years, of course, um, memories fade. Sometimes evidence gets stale. Um, but what I think is, uh, you know, time may have a effect on this prosecution, on this trial. Um, I think it's fascinating, though, this trial, because you're going to see this Scientology aspect yeah. coming into that courtroom. And they've said, you know, I, I forget some player in the, in the case said that it's not going to be a trial of Scientology necessarily, but actually the crimes that he is accused of, Masterson. But you can't really have one without the other in this in, in this case, because I believe that the Scientology aspect of things are going to be interwoven with the evidence uh, adduced at trial. So it's going to be interesting to see how these allegations are put to the test before that jury, the prosecution, uh, you know, and to what extent the prosecution is going to be diving into Scientology. And that's a very controversial uh, aspect and, and, you know, religion, if you uh, in itself. So uh, the, the attorneys are going to have a, you know, dual role here. You're going to be trying to find a jury um, who are going to be fair and impartial in light of the accusations and the crimes charged. Right. 
But you're also going to have to probably voir dire on Scientology and those people's opinions of the Church of Scientology, because there's been a lot of controversy with that, uh, the Church of Scientology. And I'm sure that's going to be peppered throughout this trial. But, you know, serious accusations that he's facing. um, And there's also been civil lawsuits. And I know another civil lawsuit actually against uh, the Scientology, uh, Church of Scientology. Um, But, you know, would Harvey Weinstein's trial happening in LA. Now you have the Masterson trial happening in LA and they're sort of um, crowning this five year anniversary of this whole Me Too movement. It's gonna be see, interesting to see how uh, thoughts and, and opinions have evolved since then. Uh, but I think Masterson with these accusations, also that Scientology aspect of things, um, you know, we'll see if, if they're, uh, his team are gonna be able to poke holes in the prosecution and prevail with an acquittal, we'll see. No. Yeah, it, it, it's funny. The The judge says this isn't going to be a trial about Scientology. I, I don't see how this is avoidable. Um, I, and I want to tease that out a little bit more with you because I'm wondering who who does it benefit more? I think it is going to play a role. Absolutely. If you're the prosecution, I imagine one of the arguments you might make um, is, well, that explains the delay in them reporting, right? It, the, yes, this is 20 years old, but we have a very understandable reason for that, that they were under the control of this very controlling church. Uh, they had a lot of things affecting their ability to just, they couldn't just come forward about what had happened to them as other people might feel more free to do. Uh, but then if you're the defense, I, I imagine you might make the argument of, um, hey, this isn't about Masterson. This is about Scientology. That's who they're trying to get a revenge against. And they don't care if they bring Masterson down as long as they bring the church down. And that's what this is really about. Who who do you think it benefits more? Or how, how, how do you think this plays out? Yeah, I mean, both of those arguments are strong in their own right, you know, and I guess they, you're going to see what the evidence complements either of those arguments. And I think, Josh, you're correct. I think that's going to be the route the defense takes. Of course, uh, with, uh, you know, calling into doubt the other evidence or, you know, the passage of time um, and whatever, uh, you know, the defense will point out in terms of the accusations or the evidence supporting the allegations. But um, I think Scientology is going to be a part of both. Prosecution have a really strong argument in that passage of time aspect um, and that sort of climate of the Church of Scientology that we've heard about. Um, and th- is there are already allegations that members of the church and they try to uh, arbitrate things and keep things down and silenced. And I think that gives the prosecution that explanation. If there's any uh, doubt in the juror's mind as to why these women may have uh, not come out with an initial outcry as to these allegations, right? Uh, that would be the explanation as a prosecutor you could give them. And of course, you're going to have to shore that up with evidence. And I think there may be an expert witness regarding Scientology who's on the prosecution's witness list. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're going to be um, looking to that the sort of aspect of the church, which people have accused the church of being, uh, you know, something where silence, you know, any sort of um, people who step out of line, I guess, in the church or could bring bad light on the Church of Scientology. And I think the prosecution are going to be looking to those aspects as they, of course, try to prove the elements of the crimes that they have charged Masterson with. No. Last question on this, something that people always wonder, um, and I'll, I'll say it in both of these cases, do you think either Weinstein or Masterson, any chance of them taking the stand and, and any benefit to them taking the stand? I would say that... Um, uh, it's likely that you will not see them take the stand. As to Weinstein, I'm not going to talk about that with yeah. Masterson. 
uh, <laughs> you know, if they if he if they call if they call uh, him to the stand, uh, if if anything, you know, he's going to be oh, he, he's now confronted with cross examination. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that it, with three accusations, three accusers, and the crimes charged for three uh, rape accusations, I think it's for a safer bet uh, for the defense not to put him on the stand. But then again, you know, I'm not privy to what's behind closed doors there. So we'll yeah. see. Yeah, I, I appreciate you you navigating those waters for us. Uh, sorry if I put you on the spot, but no, it is okay. a question that people always have. Um, and, and it's hard to kind of explain sometimes to, to folks who either aren't lawyers or are not specifically criminal defense lawyers um, that, you know, what a difficult decision that is because people's natural inclination, and you see this all the time during jury selection, you can tell people how, you know, the burden is on the prosecution and my client has a fifth amendment right. He doesn't have to testify and explain that to you're blue in the face. But there are people who always say, listen, if I was accused of something that I didn't do, you would see me take those 15 steps up to the stand immediately to tell everybody in the world how I didn't do this thing. And that is something that's just kind of so natural and, and hardwired into some people that they just can't get around it. But they don't understand it and, and help us appreciate the what it's like to be under cross-examination. And sometimes even a person telling the truth if it's good enough, cross-examination can be tripped up or made yeah. to look as though they're not telling the truth. And that sometimes that's enough for the jurors to hang their hat on. That they that maybe they didn't find the evidence all that convincing, but when they see this person take the stand and appear to lie to them, that's it uh, sometimes for a, a, def, a defendant. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, um, in a criminal case, I mean, that is one of the most difficult decisions you have. Of course, there are certain cases where you have an affirmative defense, say of self-defense, and you know if you don't put... Uh, your client on the stand to really explain that you're sort of taking some of the air out of that self-defense claim. But in 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 cases where that's not uh, at play, um, but you feel that your client has that, you know, that could explain something away and it needs to come from his or her mouth, you're really left with that tough decision. Of course, it's always the client's decision whether they're going to take the stand. You could counsel your client, listen, you take that stand, you're going to be cross-examined, they're going to be showing you this, that, and what what the other. It's going to be uh, cross, you know, uh, leading questions, uh, and you may get tripped up. Um, and if they say, "Well, no, I want to testify," you, you even though you counsel them, you have to defer to that, right? But um, it is one of the toughest decisions you make. Not only, uh, not uh, obviously the defendant themselves, but as counsel, because strategically, you're now bringing an aspect into that criminal trial where you can't necessarily hang your hat on that. You know, keep keep them to their burden. You can, but now you have put on a case with the defendant um, and that, you know, that that presumption uh, is now on display. Right. And they're open to cross-examination. As you point out, a skilled attorney, a skilled prosecutor will be able to ask, ask questions um, of the defendant uh, in a way uh, that could elicit a yes or no answer, which, you know, on redirect, you, you know, you're going to try to get that explained to the jury, but it's not always effective. There may be something in a document that, you know, they're cross-examined on that would have been left better left alone just on a prosecution's case. Um, you're opening them up, but that's the tactical decision we make as attorneys. We start thinking through it, the theory of the case, our strategy, and sometimes it works. But, Josh, listen, sometimes it doesn't, right? And you, you, you have a, a defendant who is now on display for the jury and under rigorous cross-examination. And then on summation, it's up to you to really sort of bring it back to your side. 
Um, but it, it's a it's a tough choice to make, um, not only for the client, but also for the attorney. Yeah. I remember when I was a prosecutor, I loved it when defendants would want to take the stand. It, 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 it was all nothing but fun for me because I <laughs> knew I could I could twist them up somehow. Um, it, there was a, a, a prosecutor, he's still in the LADA's office, named Phil Sterling, very experienced, very good trial lawyer. Uh, he prosecuted a lot of uh, gang-related cases, but he would famously, whenever a defendant would take the stand and he would start cross-examination, the first question out of his mouth is he would say, do you have anything else you'd like to tell us? And then he <laughs> would just step back and let them go, and you wow. could just see the panic fall on the face of the defense attorneys because now their client's up there with absolutely no safety net just talking about whatever they want to talk about and he'd let them right. go because they're just going to start adding to whatever kind of nonsense story they had about how they weren't there or they're the wrong guy or something like that and it just opened up the floodgates for him in cross-examination so i, I appreciate you explaining for our listeners uh just how difficult that decision is Finally, we turn to Waterbury, Connecticut, where jurors have handed down a verdict on InfoWars host Alex Jones to pay, get this, $965 million to the 15 plaintiffs who alleged they sustained years of trauma for claims that he made uh, that the Sandy Hook massacre was a hoax. Jones was obstinate during most of the proceedings, calling the trial a kangaroo court the conspiracy theorist uh, was found liable for damages by default after failing to cooperate with court rules on sharing evidence, leaving the jury only to decide how much the eventual damages would be. Jones has already filed for bankruptcy, testifying in his trial in Texas that he couldn't uh, afford to pay an award over $2 million. However, his free speech systems company has been valued at upwards of $270 million. He will now face a third trial, this time back in Texas, again for claims that the Sandy Hook a shooting that left 20 children and six adults dead was a hoax. Uh, Imran, uh, tell us, did this verdict surprise you? Uh, not at all. I mean, uh, listen, it was a, above the amount that the plaintiff's attorneys the, uh, you know, asked for, but it doesn't surprise me. Uh, when you look at Alex Jones and, you know, I'm a New York guy here. Right. So uh, the other day uh, I'm looking, I open the Daily News and, and what do I see? I see a, a great quote about this case uh, by you, Josh, you know, uh, and, <laughs> you know, in the New York Daily News. Right. So um, and you had it right in that uh, in your quote right there. And I'm going to echo that. I mean, listen, will they ever collect on this? Meaning the families. Right. It's such a large amount. Right. That, and, and Alex Jones, which just. I mean, I have a lot of words for Alex Jones. I'll keep it back because it's just so insulting that he he continues in the light of the truth, in the light of the verdicts that he's being hit with to keep railing against the process, to sort keep spinning this sort of conspiracy theory. Uh, and there's no remorse. There's really no apology here. And that's what um, why this large amount, I think the jury spoke what many of us uh, in the country watching Alex Jones and his actions, even after the process in court has started, have been thinking, you know, you know, this is the amount uh, to try to get you to shut up. Right. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and, and I have no problem saying that, Josh, but, you know, he's he's doubling down on things, whether legally, you know, and practically, whether he ever pays this he's not going to be able to pay it, right? He's filed for bankruptcy. Um, you know, he, he it's such a large amount, both in Connecticut 
um, and then also in Texas. And, you know, he's, he's facing more um, out there. Um, so what's what do the attorneys for the plaintiffs do? Um, you want to get some money into the pockets of the families who endured this horrific tragedy uh, with their children, only to have, uh, you know, the conspiracy theorists that, you know, totally insult them. Uh, but, you know, they uh, but how do you get that on a practical standpoint? Maybe you're approaching Alex Jones uh, to talk about a settlement on the judgment. I don't know to get some money into the pockets of of these uh, families. I don't think you would ever entertain that, um, Josh, but um, it's, it's, if it's not a practical uh, verdict, it's, it's definitely uh, speaks volumes in terms of a symbolic verdict. Um, and I hope it gives everyone pause out there who may be um, taking to the airwaves and, and thinking that they could talk uh, you know, freely, freely that you know, the, the law of defamation is out there. And even though that there's anti-slap laws in, in California and now also in New York, when you rise to that level of defamatory conduct, you, you know, you can be taken to the mat for it and held accountable. And I think Alex Jones uh, has, that's exactly what happened to Alex Jones. But unfortunately, I don't think he's got the message yet. Yeah, yeah. Um, you touched on something that I, I, I hope you can kind of uh, explain for us further, because I, I don't think a lot of people understand uh, how this works, that you, you know, a, a verdict this big what oftentimes happens is the attorneys approach each other after and they say, listen, you know, we're going to appeal this until the, the, the world turns cold. Uh, you're never going to see this money. But if we can talk about something far more reasonable and we'll waive our right to appeal and, you know, they come to some settled agreement. Ex explain that to us. Sure. I mean, in a uh, let's say a, a case with less uh, emotion and, and more reasonable people. Right. As, right. As on the defense side you know you you have a large verdict but then there's the there's the practicality of things right is it collectible so you could get a judgment in court um, for many million dollars against a, a defendant but if that individual or the company uh, ends up going bankrupt if they can't satisfy that judgment then you may end up as a creditor in bankruptcy and you're gonna get pennies on the dollar if you will of the uh, the, the judgment that you have um, you earned in court by a verdict or even a settlement person ends up uh, filing for bankruptcy later down the line. So then it becomes a, a question about how to best serve the client and how to best um, allow some sort of recovery for the client. And at that point, the plaintiff's attorney may uh, very well approach the defense attorney and say, listen, let's talk about the finances here. What can be satisfied um, in terms of, of the judgment, the verdict? Uh, and, you know, there is a give and take, right? You know, maybe you're even going to take less than what that person can satisfy. So you leave some dollars in that person's pocket so they're not completely destitute. What happens here, I don't know, because I, it's just such a wild card on the defense side, right? But um, uh, meaning uh, Alex Jones as a defendant. And, uh, but also bankruptcy, the bankruptcy process itself, you know, they become creditors, it becomes a secure judgment. It's a very complicated thing. Uh, and there is a big question mark, you know, where are his assets? There also may be a collections process that may unfold. Did Alex Jones, you know, does he have assets somewhere that can satisfy this judgment? You know, um, I think he has publicly on his airwaves expressed distrust for the federal, you know, banks, for banks and things like that. Um, he, I know, is a, a, he's in cryptocurrency and all that. So there may be a process where the plaintiff's attorneys start digging 
and looking to see if there's any assets in cryptocurrency or you know not in banks i don't know i'm speculating a little here but those would be some of the uh, processes that may take place uh for a defendant alex jones or otherwise uh whether as a judgment uh, or verdict larger than the assets at play yeah well it sounds like with all the appeals and everything that could take place after this trial and the Texas trial and now a third trial taking place in Texas, we it, the plague of Alex, jo- or Alex Jones is going to remain with us for a while. So we'll, we'll continue to watch his antics. Uh, but in the meantime, that's the end of our show for this week. Im- Imran, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find out more about you? Josh, well, first of all, thanks for having me. I think this is an excellent podcast and I always love being on with you, um, uh, either here or on Law and Crime or what have you. Um, you could find more about me um, on our firm website. That's Idala Law, A-I-D-A-L-A Law.com, or uh, my Instagram, which is at Imran Ansari ESQ. And you could find me um, on Instagram and, and Facebook, uh, what have you, but there you go. Fantastic. <laughs> And I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ. And I have a new website, joshuaritter.com. So please come check it out. I try to keep it updated. And if you're looking for a lawyer, that's where you can find me. And you can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar. Sidebar.